thank you very much for the warm welcome. Thank you very much to Andy Seller for organising this evening and uh, to Lonsborough Lodge for inviting me here. Um, I don't know whether you... I'm, part of my living, one of my uh, livings is looking around houses, as you may know. And if you have had the chance to look around Lonsborough Lodge now, you really should. It's the most extraordinary building and they're doing amazing things. They've got a new roof on, they've got fantastic, I think, 18,000 pounds worth of chimneys. Mm -hmm. uh, and inside, it used to be a, I don't know if you probably know, it's better than I, but it used to be a Turkish bath match in, in Scarborough and uh, the home of a, a wealthy family. And is now being kind of turned into a wonderful space of, of yoga rooms, Pilates studios, uh, obviously meditation and fantastic shrine room. Some of the volunteers are here who've been doing it, but uh, I really do heartily recommend you have a maybe Andy, Andy said I can give you a little tour because it's quite inspiring to see it now before um, before it's all in its splendour. It would be lovely to have a before and after shot. So I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I I did think I had been to, to Scarborough, perhaps filming, but um, having walked down the seafront areas, I haven't. I probably got the train here and went up to Whitby, where I've definitely been. But it was really delightful to go and walk along the, the seafront and see the beautiful clouds. And uh, it was a very great delight when I was invited to come and speak here on this subject. Um, <clears throat> I'm slightly perplexed because there's no water cues. I don't really know what to talk about. But <laughs> I will endeavour to bumble through. Uh, I, I hope to cover three main topics. Um, I'll introduce myself a bit, but... Um, Really, I wanted to talk about social media, the internet, uh, our lives in this very accelerated period of history where we have this incredible gift of technology, but also lots of uh, problems that come with it, or issues that perhaps don't even seem problems but might be problematic in the years to come. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of those, uh, think about why it's so powerful and what it does to our brains particularly and to our psychological sense of self and then talk a bit about mindfulness and, and meditation and how that might be useful. So you might be wondering why I um, am standing here talking about mindfulness and meditation. Um, another one of my hats uh, alongside my TV presenting I'm also um, an accredited psychotherapist and a long time meditator and for about 10 years now I've been teaching mindfulness meditation in very small groups and increasingly since I've been doing the psychotherapy I've been sort of mixing it with a more therapeutic bent so I do a course about anxiety for example I've done a course for lesbian and gay people I've done courses uh, which mix meditation with certain kind of uh, demographics can you hear me alright? not quite are you, uh, how, are you right at the back? should I, should I project? Okay. <laughs> Um, so the reason I, I've, uh, I've come is really to talk about a, uh, an area that I find really fascinating and that is the, that is the, <laughs> that is the interface between technology these amazing technological advances that we've had particularly in the last five or six years and our sense of well-being in the world That arose out of my own personal experience. I was a very early adopter of, of the internet, way back when, I don't know if you remember it, some young people here, but if you remember, there was once 
you actually had to dial up to go onto the internet. You had to go through a phone and it would go and you would only be able to do it after eight o'clock when it was cheaper. And, uh, and you had your name was like CompuServe eight six three eight four eight nine four. And so that was back in I guess in the mid nineties, ancient history in internet terms. And I was a very enthusiastic the first of my friends to have an email account certainly the first of my friends to have an iPhone and then an iPad and then pretty much every gadget and gizmo that came out of uh, Cupertino in, in California and I have, I have two blogs my blog have been blogging for many years much of my meditation business the, the Mindsprings which uh, I run my courses through is uh, uh, manifested through the internet I have a big website so in many ways, the internet was really integral to certainly my business life, but increasingly to my personal life. I found that I was using it an awful lot, Facebook, Twitter, all these social media sites. And then uh, I lost my phone. Uh, a traumatic event. <laughs> on, a, on a windy walk on the South Downs, I was a little too adventurous running through the, through the long grass, and I, I lost my phone. And I decided, sort of spontaneously, not to replace it. This was about a year ago. So I bought myself a very, very old Nokia phone that would to text you'd have to go beep, 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 and that's the. <laughs> so it was like a torture to sort of like to, and I was used to sort of like speaking into it and then immediately twittering the world. And, and part of my, my thinking around that is that I had started to suspect that my enormous internet use was having a deleterious effect on my sense of self. It was impacting my well-being. Um, and I was interested to know how that was working and why that was happening and what exactly was behind it. And so I, I sort of committed to go cold turkey from, from the internet for about six or seven months. So I got rid of my Facebook, and I got rid of, stopped using Twitter. But more importantly, I stopped sort of taking photos, and I stopped posting things on Facebook, and I stopped sort of tweeting, and I felt dreadful. I felt really quite distressed by the, the, the loss of this artificial part of me, this extension of myself. And so I became really fascinated then um, about the what was going on? Why, why was this such a big thing for me? Why, why did it impact me so intensely? And I started to do a lot of research and read a lot of fascinating, a lot of fascinating uh, research and writing around this subject. But interestingly, not very much. And it's interesting because this is perhaps the single most, I think, one of the single most important changes uh, for us in the last certainly the last few decades. The, the internet, and particularly the advent of what they call Net 2.0. So Net 2.0 was the, the moment around 2011, 2012, when the internet stopped being just a glorified shop window where you'd just go, why my face cream a little bit cheaper when I can get a sun hat? Um, and it became uh, a way of extending ourselves so Net 2.0 describes the moments where it became what they call a user economy. And that essentially meant that people could upload things. 
rather than just downloading things from the internet, they could upload things. So this would be, for example, uploading your holiday snaps onto Facebook, uploading your opinions onto Twitter, uploading your writing onto blogs, uploading your videos onto YouTube. Um, and this is a, a massively important development in the internet. And this was the thing that really started to fascinate me. Because when you're simply downloading things from the shopping site or from a you know, news gathering organization, this is a fairly simple transaction. This is like, okay, that's interesting, I'm going to download that. When, however, you start to upload your personal life, your opinions, your political views, your religious views, your sexual desires, when all this starts to kind of go up onto the net, then something very important happens. The net ceases to be just a shop window, it becomes an extension of self. And it, it's important, I think, because the net is not as benevolent as it makes out. It's not just a neutral space that just appeared beautifully, fully formed out of Tim Berners-Lee's head for all our benefits. The net is a massively lucrative, powerful, uh, piece of technology, software, but it's a piece of technology that makes mainly West Coast American corporations billions and billions of dollars every day combined. The, the, the facts and figures around net use are, are quite stunning. So when we put ourselves up into that space, we're not putting it up into a neutral space where they go, oh, how lovely, yes, please everyone share. We're giving ourselves up to these big corporations and we're giving our information away when we sign up those little boring T's and C's that we send. Tick, tick, tick. In that, we are essentially giving intellectual property rights to ourselves, to these corporations. And that's fundamentally quite an anxiety-evoking thing, even though we're not really fully aware of it. We're putting ourselves out into a public space where well, we don't even own that information any longer, and we're making ourselves very vulnerable, vulnerable to trolls, to bullying, to manipulation, to simply our words and our feelings and our emotions being lost, to bleaching out into this big ocean. So this, this I think, has a very negative effect, or has a very subtly negative effect on our sense of self because a lot of us really invest a great deal in our social profiles. It's, it's nice when we post our pictures of our children and people like them, when we pictures of our marriage and people like them, when we put our opinions and people disagree or agree with them. We become quite invested in these profiles. And so to lose them, as I did when I lost my phone, felt like a part of me had died. I'm not exaggerating that I felt there was some sort of grief <coughs> process going on. So that led me to kind of really start to look into the, the nuts and bolts, particularly in the framework of meditation and why it is that meditation seemed to offer this really nice counterpoint to some of the, the mind states that arise when I'm on the internet and that sense of feeling lost, a sense of losing oneself into the internet and coming back into the body, into the present moment through mindfulness. So I wanted to um, a bit more up here, so I wanted to um, do a little bit of an exercise so I don't blather on all the time. 
Can I just ask here, who here has a mobile phone with them, for example? And who here would say they were a heavy internet user, i.e. you check your social sites more than ten times a day? Statistically, most people check them 14 times a day, but I'll let you off there. Um, how many of you have had some experience of mindfulness meditation? So this is, this is not really a mindfulness meditation class, but uh, what I'd like us to do is, because one of the nice things about uh, meditation is that it's experiential. I, I tend to bumble on and talk and talk and talk, but uh, the nice thing about teaching meditation is that I shut up and, and you lot have an experience. So what I'd like us to do is to, to do that and try and experience a little bit of what it feels like to be present and what it feels like to be in the internet. So first of all, we're going to do the present bit. So I'd like you to just get yourself comfortable. So you might want to put both feet flat on the floor. And just use the chair to give yourself some support. You might want to shuffle your bum back a bit so that your, the, the, the backrest is giving you some lumbar support. Yes, you might have a bit more <laughs> So we're not, going to do, we're not going to do anything kind of spiritual here, don't, don't feel worried about it. This is a simple relaxation exercise, uh, sort of coming into the <coughs> present moment exercise, and it uh, uses as often these exercises as do the breath. So what I'd like to do, invite you to do is just close your eyes, sort of wiggle your sitting bones, loosen your shoulders, relax the jaw, wiggle the jaw a bit, there's a lot of tension in the jaw. Relax the big muscle of the tongue in your mouth. All the little muscles around your eyes. Let your face go soft. And just place your hands either in your lap or on your knees so that your shoulders aren't kind of dragging forward. And I'd just like you to just take a, just a normal breath in and out. So breathe in. Now, the body responds extremely well to out-breaths. If you think about when you've been in danger and you're suddenly out of danger, the natural response of the body is to go, ah. So we can trick the body into relaxing simply by overextending the exhalation. So if you breathe in normally and just take a nice long time breathing out, sort of float down through the out-breath. Breathing in, just nice and natural. Right, try and fill the belly. You can even make a little noise as you breathe out. Breathe through the lips. One more time, breathing in. And then as you breathe out, I'd like you to just breathe out. And when you get to the bottom of the breath, hold your breath out just for a few seconds. Nothing uncomfortable, but just breathe out and just let yourself feel empty. And then enjoy the moment where you fill up again. Just 
That's just how it feels to be empty and stay empty. And breathe in. And just do that a couple of times. So breathing in, nice and normal, deep breath. Bring the belly in, and as you breathe out, let everything come out, and then just stay empty, just for a few beats. Relax the breathing, just to notice how you're feeling. And then we're going to do another four breaths. So if you close your eyes again, just four ins and outs, and you can count them one in, one out, one in, one out, and two in, two out. So four breaths, and just see if you can just extend the out breath. So really use the body's relaxation to soften and relax. So you count in your own time. So four in and four in and out breaths. Four breaths, just open your eyes and just, just feel present in the room, wiggle your toes. And just, just notice how it feels, if it feels a bit anxiety evoking or pleasant, doesn't matter the outcome, just be interested in how you feel. Okay, so here, controversially, I'd like you all to get your mobile phones out. And I'd like you to turn them on. On. With volume. Turn them on, and I'd like to give you a minute and a half to just check some emails, go on Facebook. No, seriously. <laughs> go whatever you would most naturally go to. Oh, you, can, you can just look at it. <laughs> and just notice what happens when you hear that sound. Where do you go? Don't look at me, just get lost in your friends. You get a gold star. But just seriously, as you go and, go and check your Facebook or Twitter, whatever you would do on your if you have a smartphone. Good. And just, just keep tabs on how you're feeling, what it does to you. Might be delightful, might be interesting. Lots of bings and bongs. <laughs> so you 
still got 30 seconds. Last chance. Smile at me. Okay. Okay, and then I'd like you to turn your phone off. And, uh, and once again, plant your feet on the floor and just see how that experience has left you feeling. Feeling in your body, feeling in your mind. Again, it doesn't matter what you feel. You might feel absolutely delighted to have been on your phone. <laughs> There's lots of good things on phones. And then once again, for the last time, close your eyes and do the four breaths. And just keep tabs on what's happening inside you, what's happening for you as you do the four breaths. So breathing in, breathing out is one breath. And just linger on the out breath. Notice if it takes you longer to come back into the room or what happens as you come back. And when you're ready, just open your eyes and three, four, two, three, two, one, back in the room. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so usually if I was a group, I could ask everyone how that was, but um, would anyone like to say, did anyone notice anything uh, striking about that back and forth into the internet? Unsettling. Unsettling. Mm. In the sense of it was harder to settle? Yeah, and as well you feel a bit, well I felt a bit frantic. It was just completely different to how it was the first time. The first time I came out breathing, I felt very relaxed, happy, content just felt really at peace and then the second time I felt really unsettled and frantic and a bit yucky and almost ashamed as well because of what you were saying you notice it and you think what am I doing why have I been doing that to myself did everyone hear that a bit frantic unsettled a little bit ashamed yeah anyone else have something different positive experience positive in the back So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with smartphones and the internet. In fact, I use them all the time. And in a lot of, for example, my teacher is in America, so I, I, one of my Buddhist teaching comes through the internet, so it has enormous benefit. But what, I'm, what I'd like to draw our attention to, or our mindfulness to, is some of the mechanisms of what happens when we go onto the internet. And why that feeling, feeling slightly ashamed that we're kind of sucked in is actually misplaced. Because we are not at fault here. This is not our moral weakness that we get sucked into the internet. Because the internet is developing 
in a very interesting way, but in a way that makes it almost inevitable that what just happened happens. There are, for example, in the food industry, there are food substances that are called hyperpalatable. So Pringles is a good example. <laughs> hyperpalatable foods are foods that are almost irresistible to the human palate in the sense that all organic animals have certain predispositions towards saltiness and sweetness. And so you get these foodstuffs that are almost irresistible. Once you eat one, you have to eat a whole packet. And these are, people spend billions and billions of pounds developing these precisely so you can't resist them. The exact same thing happens with many internet phenomena. And I'd like to suggest that social media is perhaps one of the most powerful hyper-palatable stimulants. Because social media is designed to press some very specific buttons in our brains. So I'm going to go a bit neuroscience here, so excuse me if it's, I'm trying to explain this. But, um, <clears throat> one of the most powerful uh, neurotransmitters in the brain is dopamine. I'm sure you've come across this. So dopamine is the go-get molecule. Uh, there's a very famous, wonderful um, neuroscientist called Yak Pansep, who's been doing ex um, experiments since the 70s about the emotional building blocks of the brain. And he describes dopamine, says dopamine when it's working properly is the sort of feeling that you get when you see a Labrador let loose in a field that it's not been in before. It's like, oh, oh, oh. That is dopamine in its most positive sense. It's like, let's go out into the world and explore. Let's find new things. Let's find food. Let's find love. Let's find sex. Let's find drink. It's extremely important for all living beings to get out there and experience things, and it's the excitement of the new, the, uh, the novelty orientation. And this is deeply programmed into the human brain. We are, it's almost irresistible, the desire to go to something new, something shiny, flashy, tasty, sexy. And in fact, the dopamine is paired in the human brain with another system, which is the... So the dopamine is the seeking system, and the other system is the sort of enjoying system. So dopamine rules the seeking system, and opioids rule the enjoying system. So you, you, get your, you get your food or your drink, or you find something new, or you find a new partner, and then you enjoy having them. So it's the wanting, and then there's the enjoying. But interestingly, dopamine is stronger than opioids. It will always trump enjoying. We are primed, necessarily for evolutionary reasons, we're primed to always want to get more. If there's a chance that there's something else that we haven't got, then it's in our evolutionary interest to get it and store it, because who knows what might happen later on. So we're always being driven. The dopamine is one of, is the most powerful brain transmitter. And the internet, the way the internet has developed, is the perfect catnip for do dopamine. 
it will always draw us in because there is an infinite, almost infinite amount of new, exciting, fresh stuff. And so the, the desire for the dopamine hit, and dopamine, for example, is what's behind cocaine. That's exactly what happens when you have cocaine, the addictive quality of cocaine. So they always like, oh, oh look, I found out what the capital of uh, Upper Volta is. It's Wagadougou. And then that's going to take me to like, oh, there's amazing pictures of Wagadougou. And there's amazing Muslim things. And that's taking me to the site about ISIS. And oh my God, what happens if ISIS rule the world? And then, so there's this constant chain of, of connections driven by dopamine. If you add into that mix sex and love, and a sense of self, it's curtains. Because those things, sex, love, being loved and loving, and being approved of, having our sense of self enhanced and loved and cherished, these are absolutely irresistible. And when you look at something like Facebook, or Twitter, or Snapchat, or Instagram, these are all designed to harness that desire to be loved, to find partners, to be constantly stimulated, to be approved of, in infinite measure. So they're tailored exactly to, to push that dopamine button. So that's, that's the reason why it's not our fault that we get kind of caught up in these things. So that's good, so we can get rid of the guilt. But it's very important to understand what's happening, that that's what's happening when we spend six hours on Facebook or on YouTube or wherever. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the, the puzzle gets a little more complicated because alongside dopamine, we are also driven by cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So dopamine is getting what we want, and cortisol is getting what we don't want. So it's the, it's the brain chemistry that's like fear and panic. And interestingly, interestingly Panksepp makes a distinction between fear and panic. So fear, he discovered in all these experiments that he's been doing, fear is the feeling of being attacked. So if someone's attacking you, it's all the kind of flight and fight, and like, oh, your hackles go up and you want to fight. This is the, the, the response of fear. This is cortisol. Cortisol and adrenaline do this to us. <clears throat> Panic is also driven by cortisol, but it's actually a quite different system. Fear is the, is the response to being attacked. Panic is the response of being abandoned. So the classic example is a, a bird falls out of a nest or a cub loses its mother and it starts to squeal and squeak as loud as possible. That is the panic response. It's like, find me, find me, find me, find me. And that, uh, that fear, it's not the same as the attack fear, it's a different set of, uh, sort of uh, procedures. It's also driven by cortisol though. And what happens with panic is that at a certain point the animal realizes that it's making so much noise it's making itself a target and it goes silent. And so that when panic collapses, that's what Panksepp calls grief and depression. So we've been abandoned, we squeal, and then we stop squealing. And this is almost as powerful as dopamine. The systems of attachment and love that we all have from childhood on totally drives our being in the world. 
So a sense of being abandoned lies behind when we put up a picture of our new house or our new the meal that we had and nobody likes it. Not one thumbs up. <laughs> and that's a trivial, trivial example, but actually that is the, exactly the same system. That is panic. It's the sense of not being loved, not being wanted. And it's heartbreaking. It's one of the, the, the heartbreaking thing about being human. And so when you have the dopamine, the endless drive of dopamine, and then the endless fear of abandonment, and panic, or attack, if you're being trolled or bullied, this makes the, the internet doubly, not toxic, that's wrong, doubly vulnerable making. It makes us very kind of vulnerable. Unfortunately, there's a, third, there's a third element in the mix which is perhaps the most worrying of all, and this is dissociation. So we have desire, and interestingly, this maps almost exactly into the Buddhist, Buddhist psychology, because in Buddhist psychology, most of our suffering comes from desire, fear or aversion, and from ignorance or dissociation, not seeing and this third part of not seeing is the bit that I'm really interested in because dissociation, do you want, does anyone know dissociation? So it's a, it's a specialized word from psychotherapy or from, from um, psychology. It's the state of zoning out. When something traumatic happens, when you just something traumatic and you forget about it, you black out, you can't remember it. This is the most classic example of dissociation. So somebody's raped or someone's attacked and they just black out and then they come back in the police cell later on. They can't remember anything about it. This is, this is a classic psychological definition of dissociation. But also, there's a lot of very interesting work around uh, dissociation being a much more widespread phenomenon, in the sense that when, um, when you're in a room with a ticking clock, and after about three seconds you stop hearing the ticking clock, that's also dissociation. It's a sort of a carving out of our perception, so it's like a sort of like a shuttering out of certain things that are not so important or are too painful. So this is uh, what they call dissociation. And what is what I find really fascinating about the internet is that it thrives or is fueled by dissociation. And by that I mean it's the particular phenomena that happens. You may have that was a very brief example. You may have experienced it just then, but the particular phenomena that happens when you know that you shouldn't really be spending this much time on YouTube or that you shouldn't be like looking at that 19th link on Twitter or that you, and you know, there are hundreds of, you know, shouldn't be playing Candy Crush or you shouldn't be doing Angry Birds or you shouldn't be playing online poker or you shouldn't be looking at sexy pictures late at night. But you do it. It's the carving out of your perception so that you're just in this very narrow field of existence. So basically you kind of tune out all of annoying reality and then you're just in this pleasantly dissociated but ultimately not very healthy state. And this can go on for decades. We can live like this. Gradually shaving more and more stuff out of the picture to keep ourselves in this safe little box. And this becomes this really comes alive when you look at some of the literature around gaming. There's an amazing book. 
remember the name of the author, but I can put together some notes or something. But there's an amazing book about the gaming industry in America. This woman did a lot of research into apparently the fruit machines on Am Bandits now uh, supply 75% of all income in gambling in America. So in, in Las Vegas, the kind of the crap table and all that stuff, that's just a little bit of window dressing. All the money comes from fruit machines. And fruit machines, again, there's, there's a billion dollar industry and there's massive amounts of research done to create the machine, this is the phrase they use, to create the machine that plays the player to extinction. This is the phrase they use. The, the game, the machine must make the player play to extinction, which just means that they've, they've run out of money. And what's interesting about research is that gambling in that instance is not about winning. The people who gamble in that way and sometimes it's not unusual for people to gamble for eight hours at a stretch, sometimes for 12. The people who gamble in that way are not interested in winning. In fact, when they have a big ching, 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 and the money comes up, that's really annoying because it stops the trance. It stops the mind meld with the machine. What they're paying all the money for is not the chance of winning, but it's to zone out and be married to the machine. And that's true of actually quite a lot of addictive behaviours. That it's not, a, it's not actually about the obvious thing, like looking at porn or you know, winning money or buying too many foods or uh, buying show and online shopping or eating too much. The food, the shopping, the sex are not the important thing. What's important is the dissociation. What's the important is those few hours where you don't have to be grown up, you don't have to deal with the world, real objects, real people, real time, real space. You're in this incredibly one-dimensional, zoned-out space. And this, I think, is the most worrying aspect of, of the internet, particularly when it comes to well-being and our future as human beings in the world. Um, because that sense of withdrawal, of self-isolating, is ever-increasing and massively problematic. It makes us, it makes it almost impossible for us to flourish as beings in a world, and it makes it almost impossible for us to love other people properly because other people simply become either obstacles to us getting into that zone, or at a slightly more relaxed state, they become simply resources or threats to our well-being. We're no longer, we don't feel that we're in a shared world. We've created this kind of optimized internet world where everything is kind of shaped to please us. And this is, I think, profoundly <coughs> worrying. Because when we have, when we go online and there's always an app that will sort things out for us, there's always something where we can text rather than talk, so we can dump our boyfriend or our girlfriend by text, so we don't actually have to see them. Yeah, yeah you're dumped. <laughs> this kind of sort of safety blanket of virtuality, of representations rather than reality, becomes incredibly cocoon like but it's actually, it kills us. There's no vitality in it. There's no energy in it. And so that 
that sense of being cut off from the vitality of life, I think is, is super toxic. And you know, it worries me a lot. There's a lot of dreadful examples of people who just disappear into, into the internet and we never see them again. So, so far so disastrous. But <laughs> uh, the, the, the good news is that obviously the, this is a very new phenomenon. When we think about it, um, smartphones and the internet are in this sort of incredible uh, density have only been around for five years. It's an unbelievable explosion. A few um, stats here. This was in 2014, so this is already like, oh God, that was last year. But every minute, so this is every minute, remember, not every day, every minute of the day in 2014, there are, there are around 3 billion internet users in the world. That's 60% of the world's population. Every, every minute, those 3 billion internet users, and I'm just going to read these out, <clears throat> sent 204 million emails a minute, uploaded 72 hours of YouTube a minute, made more than 4 million Google searches, shared 2,460,000 pieces of Facebook content, content downloaded 48,000 Apple apps, spent $83,000 on Amazon, tweeted 277,000 messages, and posted 216,000 new Instagram photos a minute. And it's said that up until 2019, the number of mobile phones, and at the moment there are more mobile phones on the planet than there are toilets, fact, <laughs> the number of mobile phones and sort of information exchange things like iPads, will quadruple, quadruple in the next four years. So this is, a, this is a massively important thing. And it sort of just happened. It just happened and we all went, yay, free software, and like, I can send people pictures of my bum. <laughs> oh, cat. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's fine, because often these things... You know, happen suddenly and then we catch up. But this is the time to catch up. This is the moment where we should start going, okay, this is all fantastic but what about this? What about that? How is this actually affecting me and the people I love? What's it doing to my sense of self? And this is the thing that particularly interests me as a, as a psychotherapist is this, this sort of thinning out of our sense of self that it becomes, we're posting ourselves onto the on Facebook and on Instagram and our self-profiles become kind of stand-ins for our actual physical body and they're kind of easier they're easier to manage you can make them look pretty with a, like a little, oh, little filter there we can airbrush out our spots and we can mm, yeah I can put that one and we can delete the comments we don't like and, you know, we can perfectly manicure our online presence unlike our spotty flabby you know, real <laughs> presence and the other thing that's quite alarming is a wonderful book by a uh, wonderfully titled woman called Sherry Turkle, who uh, is a big, big wig in MIT in America, and she did a lot of research into the internet. She was a great evangelist through at the beginning and then started to realize that there was a lot wrong with it. And her particular uh, bugbear is the fact that interpersonal relations start to suffer. So she did some research with uh, high school uh, students in America and found that, um, found that a huge number of them now refused to do, to, to do any interpersonal 
react, uh, interactions that involve something difficult, face to face. So dumping someone, asking someone for money, asking for money back, asking for help. All of these things, they would rather do these by a text or an email, and increasingly would not do them face to face. And actually, increasingly would not even do them on the phone. They'd rather just send it at one remove. And this is also understandable, but worrying. Because being in the world, being a social being amongst other human beings, involves discomfort. That's fact. You know, the world is not designed to make you happy. The world is designed to, so that everybody can kind of mill around trying to be happy and bumping into each other. Some people have sharp elbows. Sometimes the world is benevolent. Sometimes there's a shit heap. But, you know, that is the world. And actually, we need to kind of stand, you know, grow up and, and realize that the world is not always going to be pleasant and we do have to be able to tolerate discomfort and sort of go through that. And this culture of the internet is that we must never ever feel any discomfort ever and we must never ever wait for anything. We must have everything instantly and we must never feel at all socially uncomfortable. And the, the result of that is that we're completely alone. We become more and more isolated. Because unless you actually go into a bar and you actually talk to someone, the danger is you're just going to stay in the virtual world. You're going to be comparing profiles, oh, blonde hair, nice smile, but you never actually go and never kiss the girl or kiss the boy. So the the retreat from reality is, is worrying. And I'm you know, talking crazy, but so now I'm going to move on to the, the good news <laughs> from my point of view, which is good news, which is uh, Dharma, which is about med- meditation and particularly mindfulness. The antidote, I personally believe, that the antidote to these problematic aspects of the internet is, of course, that's my business, is meditation. Or particularly this sort of embodied form of meditation that we call mindfulness. So the, the key to this word mindfulness is in the word, it's mindfulness. A lot of these internet experiences, although they're very stimulating, in the same way that cheese Doritos are very stimulating, they're not very nutritious. They're quite thin and papery and like plasticky, and they leave us feeling a bit queasy. <clears throat> the practice of mindfulness is about finding a path back into a fuller experience of being human. And this is problematic in the sense that being a full human also involves being disappointed, being embarrassed, being hurt, being shy, being timid, being wrong. But that's all right. That's that's what being human is about. So mindfulness is really a very inclusive practice. But at its root is saying, whatever you experience as a human being, this is all good. This is good and proper. But try and feel it in your body. Try and embody it. Try and keep it real and not too virtual. One of the kind of underlying principles of, of Buddhism or Dharma 
is a move away from representation into reality. So letting go of ideas about things and people and actually just going, okay, what do I actually feel about this? What does this person really feel like sitting opposite me? What does this world do to me? It's a sort of opening up to a relationship with you and the world, you and people, you and societies, you and nature, whatever. So it's a relational thing. And to have a relationship, you need to have a body. You need to be embodied. And increasingly, the work that I do is, is very much about, meditation is about coming back into our bodies. One of the worrying things about, about the virtual that our fascination with the virtual is that it takes us further and further away from our bodies. And many of us are not very comfortable with our bodies because our bodies hurt and they get old and they ache and they sag in the wrong places. But in, in many ways, the, the thrust of meditation is to start to love reality as it is. Even if it's a bit saggy and achy, at least it's real. It's real. And when we start to pay attention to what's real, then it comes alive and it starts to feed us back. And one of the most chronic crimes of the internet, and I'll wrap up soon so I don't talk forever, one of the chronic crimes of the internet is the robbery of our attention. In fact, the, the internet or sort of post-manufacture uh, capitalism is often called an, an attention economy. It's no longer about what we make, but it's about where we put our attention. So, do we read that newspaper or this newspaper? Do we go and follow that Twitter feed or that Twitter feed? Do we look at that picture of kittens or that picture of kittens? The whole of the internet, in many ways, is about harvesting our attention. Because where our attention goes, there lies money. So the more we go somewhere, the more likely we are to be able to be sold something. That fundamentally is what underlies the internet. We can dress it up in any other way, but it's driven by advertising in many ways. So people want you to look at them. They want to look at your website, look at their website. So it's all about <coughs> harvesting our attention. And when you go down the seafront or to the amusement arcades in, in Scarborough, or you go on, as I just had this afternoon, being in the Tube in London, we are bombarded by demands on our attention. Look at this. Oh my God, I haven't seen that play. Oh, I haven't seen that play. <gasps> Such a cultural idiot. Oh my God, I've got a flash of lights. I need to put money into that. Oh. And that can be, it can be subtle or it can be obvious, but uh, uh, where we put our attention is where we live. The Buddha said, two and a half thousand years ago, he said, attention equals life, and non-attention equals death. So where, what we attend to, where we bring our attention, that comes to life for us. So if we bring our attention to our body, then it starts to fill out. It starts to feel less like a problem or a thing, but more like a field of experience. When we bring our attention to our partner, our loved ones, face or eyes or behavior, it stops being, oh, God, she's so annoying. And it becomes, wow, she's a real person. She has feelings. And, like, there she is. Attention brings everything alive. Attention is the kind of gold. And we squander it 
all the time. We're like, yo, yes, you can have my attention, Candy Crush. I'll give you all my attention for like five hours. And that's wrong. A bit moralizing, but that is unhealthy. Because where we put our attention, that is where we live. And the great thing about, the simplest thing about mindfulness practice is that it's basically training us to attend properly. To choose where we put our attention. Now, I'm not going to put it on QVC. I'm going to put it on how I'm feeling, or the beautiful sun, on those clouds, or my, my, my toes, or wherever you want to put it. And so you stop being dragged around like a puppet by these kind of invisible forces of, of consumerism, really. <clears throat> and you come back into your body and you go, here I am. This is my choice to be here. And we start to feel some integrity and some wholeness again. And mindfulness is, is frustrating because it's difficult to train your attention because we've been trained to be distracted. <clears throat> but it's incredibly rewarding. And alongside you know, getting back into our attention, we also start to inhabit our bodies, which means that we can be in the world more fully. Our sense of self stops being like a Swiss cheese full of holes, and it starts to feel a bit more kind of continuous. We're able to be in the world and interact with people in a way that's not just kind of exploitative, but actually is more kind of like, yeah, we're in a shared world. We're both sharing this, this space. And so... Somehow ranges on this. Um, to, to sum up really, the internet is not necessarily a problem. It has enormous benefits and I, and I don't want it for a minute to be like a Luddite saying, yeah, let's turn it off and not have it. But I, I do think it's interesting to find some ways and we can perhaps talk about this when I do some Q&As afterwards, uh, to find some ways of actually stepping back from it, seeing what's going on, not being quite such a puppet. And I, and I do think the mindfulness, some sort of meditative practice, so every day you create a space where there is no distraction, there's only attention on, on the self and, and the body, is, is one of the most tried and tested ways to find some space from which we can examine this amazing phenomena without being completely destroyed by it. But uh, it, it's, it's very interesting to hear sort of thoughts and maybe to have a, a bit more of a dialogue than me just waffling on at the frontier. So I'm going to sit down. If anybody has any, um, any thoughts or questions about what I've said um, or objections to what I've said, then please do voice them. Yes? A couple of things strike me. Firstly, um, talk about the internet being new. But what is new in terms of our association with it, the fact that we can interact with it. It strikes me that we've had something in our lives, or my parents have had something in their lives that have had something that's distracted them for a long time, which is television. The figures around television use, the average use, is frightening. Just under four hours a day for the average adult in the UK. And again, it just seems that the internet continues that and draws you in even more. Um, and secondly, is you talked about um, social media as a drug analogy, that's the, the cocaine, and it is frightening to a point, very much so, that people get so involved in it. 
but to me there seems to be a crack cocaine of the internet as well, which is a game. And that, again, that really does scare me for the kids. Mm. Because now, I remember as a child, when I say child, 10, 11, I'd go out and play. I'd play soldiers. I might be a soldier or an Indian or whatever. Mm. And now, my nephews are doing that online. And so they don't have the, the outside, in yeah. the real world, as you say, experience <laughs> the, the, the real. They're now experiencing the fake. Yeah. And that, and that really does chill me. Yeah. And, I, and again, I, I, again, myself, just enjoy everything. Like, I, I enjoy alcohol, perhaps I should, but I'm not an alcoholic. But there's this, I think that perhaps, perhaps what you were meaning is that the internet has its positive sides. But like anything, if you abuse it, it becomes very negative in your life and then takes over your life. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um but the first part, obviously, I'm, I work in television, so I'm part of the problem. But uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> no, but, but what I wanted to sorry, I was being facetious. But what I want to say is that actually, I don't think there's a problem with distraction per se. You know, it would be unbearable. Well, you'd probably be a Buddha if you were constantly present to everything all the time. But we're not. You know, it's, sometimes it's good to be distracted and zone things out. Uh, I think, you know, reading was seen as a distraction when it first arrived. Books were seen as... There's always been something that's been distracting us from pure being, whatever that is. I, th- I think you're right, it's just the sheer volume and the devilish cleverness of the, the, the industries that create these things. I mean, gaming is one, internet pornography is another huge problem. I have a, I have a client... Stand up. I have a client who's 20 and who has erectile dysfunction because he cannot have sex with his girlfriend because she's not a porn image. So that the image, all his excitement in the wiring of his brain, and this is actually what happens, the wiring of his brain has, has gone from his eyes, you know, seeing a, a woman, to just seeing an image. So I, I do worry enormously about, I don't know so much about gaming, but I, um, I did do a project about internet porn. I've got, I say friends, people who I've known, for a long time that have become slaves to it. Yeah. That that's, I don't interact with them anymore and have a friendship with them because that's what they do. Yeah. And um, it just seems such a, a powerful medium to pull you into. You, you, you're the heroic figure. You're not watching Spider-Man anymore. You are Spider-Man. <laughs> and that is such a, you, you could become the hero, but when I talk about before when we did the meditation exercise, you, you don't get the out at the end, and I think that's one of the, the problem. But a lot of addiction television is only now television. Is you don't, like I, I can lose self in carving, for example, but I seem to look at the end of it. Mm. I go for a walk and have that experience. Yeah, I think it comes back to that thing of dissociation that these industries. And I do, I do want to draw about that. These are not kind of innocent. People spend a long time designing these games, designing these machines. I, I was reading about these, these internet, these gaming machines, that they actually have designed games that recognize favorite players so that they somehow know when the player approaches and they greet them. And when the player tries to leave the casino, they call them back. How chilling is that? You know, the, the machine calls them back. And I, I think there, there is a good, good case for like 
questioning, you know, an industry, for example, as we now question cigarettes, for example, but questioning an industry that encourages people to overeat, encourages people to spend, you know, days and weeks gambling or Dumb watching behavior. Hmm? That encourages damaging behaviour. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I laugh at the online poker and I'm thankful I don't have a television so I don't watch adverts, but I do remember once I had a television not that long ago and there was lots of adverts for online poker. I just thought, poker was a social thing. Yeah. And now you just remove the social thing and now it's just about giving some money. Sex used to be a social thing. Can I ask something? Yes. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of the other side in that um, I, it is part of life. Um, my, I get all my social events through Facebook. Um, that's kind of all I do. But I also tap in and look a bit at what my friends are doing, happening around the world and things. And, you know, it, it is there, part of life. But every time I resent it, I hate it in my life. I hate emails. I hate cho- I have difficulty making choice anyway. The amount of choice. So it's there, but yeah. it drives me insane. Well, this is the so, thing that, you know, yeah, Facebook, I still use Facebook. It's, like, <coughs> it's a nice way, but it, that often leaves me feeling angry. And I'm like, why am I feeling angry? I've just looked at a few people's holiday snaps. But I think you're right, it is the kind of, it's the choice that is exhausting. I met, I was teaching on Jersey uh, recently, and um, one of my students said, oh, I met this amazing woman yesterday who is 82 years old, and she has not left her parish on Jersey. Like, Jersey's tiny, it's like 14 parishes, and she's never left her parish to go to St. Helier, the capital. At 82. And I was thinking, how, like, how amazing must that be to kind of just... So, you know, you've just got those few things that are satisfying, you see the seasons come and go, you're not, you know, now we grow up like, oh my God, I've got to go to the Antilles. So is that Lady Shorter Joker then? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. not, because maybe when she sees a meadow of spring flowers, that's, that's the dopamine that she needs. So have explorers got more dopamine than average person? Well, presumably, yes. I haven't done that brain scan. <laughs> but this is what I mean. This is what I mean about this. That dopamine is not a bad thing. Dopamine is totally necessary, as is cortisol. It's just that these industries, this particular kind of social, cultural phenomena, massively keys into these things in a way that is worrying. You know, it exploits these very natural human qualities. Can I ask a question? Oh, yes. Hi. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I, I don't have a Facebook account. I don't have Twitter. I don't blog. I, so you're I, sitting there feeling very kind of happy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> well, I, I think I've always felt the Facebook thing was something... Uh, when people started doing um, Friends Reunited, it freaked me out completely. And somebody from 30 years ago when I was at you know, school or more, wanted to contact me and I through my brother and I said I, I don't want I don't know how to relate. How can you fill in 30, 40 years and say, you know, I'm 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 busy with my life now. I've got people here now and I've always had this thing of, you know, friendships are 
like my life's like a uh, you know two doors. Friends can come in, and but they can they're free to go also. And I I want the same right, but because I'm not, I mean I I'm a bit of an eBay. We were all thinking, so, oh. <laughs> I don't sell, I buy. <laughs> and so, um, I, but I miss out on things. I mean, people don't text me if there's things going on at work um, or, you know, if there's a social gathering. People forget to text me because I'm not on Facebook and I find out about these things and I think, eh, you know, I'm left out. This is why I think there's probably a way of being of doing these things mindfully. Of just going, okay, I'm just going to use it in this way. I'm not going to post things. I'm not going to... And just see, you know, if it, what is it that makes you angry? What is it that you dislike? And then just don't do that bit of it. This is what I'm trying to do very quickly. Oh, yeah. can, can I just ask yeah. this lady back? Uh, yeah. I've never been a fan of any of the three for the week. And I've never seen it probably never impact my life with parties that everyone always friends for. But then again, I hang around a bit with famous, so it's kind of not that part of that. But in what is in the famous, there's a huge amount of traction for disassociation to it. But it's also because gaming provides a challenge to interact with rather than just talking, which they all afraid of. And also, there's the professional gamers and people who aspire to be these people, so they work hard to find this thing that they can focus on, and it distracts them from life at the same time, which I think is a major traction for gaming itself. And I think that does distract you from life itself. But you also make so many friends. I know people in my, my college who wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for the internet and the gaming. And they've made such good friendships. It's surreal. And I, I'm interested, do those friendships manifest in the world or are they just online? In the world. Um, do they, I mean, do they hang out in real yeah. space? I mean, at lunchtime, at break time, in college and certain out-of-school, out-of-college groups, you know, they come together because they found you know, a way to contact people on the internet and discovered they're in the same space, or you know, they've heard conversations about game fashion and they're like, oh look, I can join someone now. It's giving them to talk to it a way in to social things. And these people are all outcasts or introverts. You know, they've never found a way to be social before. And they've found their social group, which I think is a good thing that a, a positive about gaming is provided. The negative is it can be highly addictive. Yeah, I think this is also you know, one of the big things. You know, one of the big things that was hyped with the internet that it would create these kind of amazing niche communities of people of like-minded you know, persuasions being able to come. And, and to some extent, that that was true. But also, sadly, it led to uh, a lot of these uh, a sort of more homon- homogenization. People all started to dislike the same thing. You know, this this great thing about music that you know when music went online, it meant all these niche musicians would have their, uh, you know, have, be able to put all their albums out and everyone would like listen to the, all their albums and they'd have this kind of, there's a word for it, long tail, it's called long tail um, economics. But actually that didn't happen. Just be, everybody listened to Taylor Swift and everyone else died. <laughs> so it's sort of, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it can work, but it, it doesn't actually, you look at the big picture, it wasn't this kind of great sort of anarchic, kind of like democratic uh, revolution actually four companies ended up owning the world that's the, the sad truth of it.
Do you have a suggestion um, to how, if you know somebody in your life, there was something that's obviously in this disassociation place, but they're quite happy with it. I would be a way of encouraging them out of it. Well, I would be wary about encouraging someone else. If you are in that disassociation, <laughs> then like, you can work with it. Mindfulness is always about your, you can't be mindful on somebody else's behalf. Suggest that you can try it. That's what I was going to mention before. Um, do you feel that, obviously, on the internet, it was funny, I was with Annie a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this talk, and the whole conversation spurred up have we put it on Facebook? Are people coming? Have we advertised it enough? And I sat there going, isn't it about the mind, the app? But obviously a lot of these people did find out through Facebook, and that's going back to what you said about being mindful about it, using it for the good, because ultimately, like you said, you can't escape it. Well, not unless you live in the field, you know. But for me, I, I went out without a phone for about two months, it broke, and it was great, and I felt free, and you know, all of a sudden I had an interview that had my phone number, so I had to get it back in case they contacted me. I got it back and I thought to myself, right, I'm just going to use this purely for good. I'm going to use it for my camera because I need to do my photography and that's it. You know, just I'll turn on silent. But then slowly it is like an addiction. You wake up in the morning and it's there and you think, well, what happens if somebody's just messaged me? Somebody might really need me. And slowly it just started to take a hold again. And that's why I find it difficult to think, how could you possibly get the balance? If it is like a drug addiction, how like, can you do that? Well, let's talk about that. Is it okay to talk a bit about that, what we can do? Excuse me, but could you link it in also about the developing brain? I'm just thinking about how that might affect young people as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah. They've got mothers that don't talk to them, fathers yeah. that don't talk to them. They're too busy on the phone, even when they're in a beautiful park, Again, I would yes. be I would be more, I would be wary about sort of casting judgment on other people's use. Mm. We don't it know. It's annoying, though. It may well be annoying, but then that's that's something to be mindful of in yourself. Stepping in front of you. That's also something to be mindful. Of. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I know it's very, it's very, this, it's very emotive because we, we, you know, and, and we do all know people who are affected by it. But unfortunately, you can, you cannot live someone else's life, you, and you certainly can't be mindful on someone else's behalf. And I'm afraid I don't know an awful lot about the neurobiology of development. I know a little bit about it, but I wouldn't be able to speak convincingly on it. I, I, I can find out some stuff. Well, the worrying thing is that the, the one surefire thing that they have discovered about neuroplasticity, so neuroplasticity plasticity is the brain's ability to rewire itself. Mm. For a long time, it, they thought that once a child got past teenage, that was it, the brain's never going to change. But now there's massive evidence that the brain is always changing and can change quite significantly. Never as much as in the first 18 months or in that window of teenage from about 13 to 17. Those are the two massive windows of neuroplasticity. 
Um, but the, the one thing they do know is the two factors that almost guarantee rewiring of the brain. The two things that you know, work which will have shown that will strengthen synaptic uh, pathways is <laughs> there are um, volition, so you have to want to do it, uh, and attention. You have to be really focused in it. So if you do something you want to do and you're really focused, that will lay down new wiring. And then if you think about watching pornography or playing a you know fighter game or you know looking at your internet feed. These are all things that you want to do, and you do them regularly over and over again, and you totally lose your attention into them. So those are the things that are going to restructure your brain. So that's why it's really worrying. But that's also the reason why mindfulness is a proven way of rewiring the brain too. You bring your attention to something, and you enjoy it, you find benefit in it, and you do it regularly. So it's very difficult to get teenagers to do mindfulness. Oh, well, My experience. Just a word of, not word of warning, but with mindfulness, um, what I will say is that I did have an experience with meditation, and I'll be really open about it. My first meditation I ever did actually triggered a mania. Um, so I just think what's really important to stress with any meditation is that you not that you know what you're doing, but make sure it's with somebody that you trust or, you know, certified. I wouldn't just go out to anybody and just start meditating because it can end, not end badly because I'm okay now, but I did go through a really traumatic period of my life because of it. Of course. Now, funnily enough, my psychiatrist is referring me back to mindfulness, so it's ended with meditation. <laughs> it's working, which is good. Yeah, meditation is not a, it's, it's just a, it's a technique of opening up to the mind. If there's stuff getting in the mind that's contributed and that will happen. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I want to really, really stress. So can I just bring it back to your first point, which yeah. was uh, things that we might do just because I was really talking about that. Mm. <coughs> and it's always giving me that sort of look. <laughs> so I, I've run this, I've, I've run a course on this before and I've given this talk before and I've thought about it and had my own experiences with it and there are a few things that I kind of came up with and I'm sure you can think of some other things but these are a few things that I came up with which might be interesting little techniques to try and bring some mindfulness into this picture and one of the easiest and perhaps well, one probably the difficultest but it's the most simple is abstinence and I don't mean giving I mean you might want to just throw your mobile phone into the sea uh, or lose it on a mountain um, but I would suggest you could start smaller than that and you could turn your mobile phone and all devices off between 10 at night and 8 o'clock in the morning so I did the sort of crowdsourcing of the group once and we decided that was the kind of acceptable window because there's very good evidence that looking at screens before you go to sleep really buggers up your sleep cycles so it will help you sleep better and then when you get up the first thing you look at is not your mobile phone don't sleep with it under your pillow and a surprising number of people in the interview did sleep with it under their pillow don't sleep with it you could turn it off at 10 o'clock watch telly or talk to people read sleep get up walk to the garden talk to people read and then turn it on this is a very simple, it's manageable, it's not too draconian. Anybody can do that. 
And it does have an extraordinarily powerful effect. Because you're so many times like, oh. And just that ability to say no is the, is the kind of beginning of mindfulness, of choosing where to put your, emotion, put your attention. You could also extend that and have a day off, like a Sunday, where you simply turn all those devices onto airplane mode, just use them for the telephone if you have that sort of willpower, you just don't go onto the internet. So that's another way of abstinence. If you, if you struggle with that sort of like selection, you could also start removing certain apps from your phone. So do you really need the Twitter app? Do you really need the Facebook app on your mobile phone when you have it on your computer? The things that you carry with you all the time, what do you really need? Could you just use it as a camera and a, tele as a, te as a telephone? Maybe text. Telephone people, don't text them. Engage with people, don't turn them into representations. Don't email them, pick up the phone. People hate being phoned nowadays. Like when I lost my earnings and texting was so painful, I'd phone them like, what are you phoning me for? <laughs> because it's so slow texting, what well, I hate people phoning me. People don't answer the phone. People don't answer the phone, and some people don't even have messages on their phone anymore. But still, you can stick out as that, oh, is that person always phones? Uh, more subtle is to start noticing that dissociation. When you're on the bus and you're like, oh. and then you're like, oh, I'm on a bus. There's a world. And just to be aware of that gear change is incredibly powerful. To so like, oh, I was actually down on the, because I do have a, I do have a smartphone now. I do have a smartphone now for various businesses. But I found that having not had it, I was like, oh, so lovely not having it. And I used to take lots and lots of photos. And I was down on the, on the seafront, and I was like, oh. And I, just in the process of doing it, I was like, oh, this is so boring. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, I just much rather just look at it and remember it. I was on holiday abroad, and I couldn't use data. And there was no Wi-Fi anywhere. It was fantastic. Yeah. It's liberation. Just try it. So uh, just notice that dissociation. Don't overshare. This is the other thing. The, the temptation of all of these websites is to want us to share because they make their money out of all the information they give, we give them. Facebook, the, Facebook only exists because we gaily give away everything onto their... The, all their content is created by us and we don't pay anything. We don't get paid anything. But they make billions and billions of dollars. So just experiment with not oversharing. Don't share every thought that goes through your head. Just enjoy it. Don't share pictures of your food, just eat it. <laughs> Don't share, you know, unnecessary kind of bits of emotion. Because these are private things. There's a great culture of, like, privacy as some kind of... You know, ten years ago, being exposed publicly was a bad thing. That was something you would be ashamed of. And now, after that terrible quote... I forget his name now. In the... In the not Andy Coulson, but one of those guys during the kind of the, the whole phone tapping thing, he said, famously said, privacy, privacy is for pedos. Oh. This idea that actually, if you have nothing to hide, then you should put everything out. You should be asked, you know, this is bollocks. You know, we are essentially private people. There's bits about ourselves that we don't know, that then other people need to know. So, so be more private. I mean, this is the, uh, these are two more practical things. There's one, go for a walk. The human brain is essentially a brain of a hunter-gatherer. 
It developed over two million years of hunter-gatherer, and then this last tiny little, tiny stick-on is when we were agriculturalists and when we had civilization. So our brains developed to walk at least 12 miles a day. It's meant to be a moving thing. We're meant to move and see things and judge distance and be aware and you know, scope out the world around us. And that's what makes our brain flourish. There's, re uh, there's research that shows that a 20-minute walk every day, this is an amazing piece of fact, 20-minute walk a day cuts the likelihood of Alzheimer's by 57%. So keeping the brain and the eyeballs moving through the world allows the brain to flourish and allows us our sense of self to thicken out and become more real. I'm assuming that's 20 minutes not thinking about all the things you're going to write on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, and I've, I've started doing it, just letting your eyes drift, like really just being with your eyes, being, uh, scoping out distance, checking out space, being aware of things. This is it's a, it's a pleasant way of spending 20 minutes. And the final thing, and this is obviously slightly biased because it's my axe to grind, is try and establish a daily practice of meditation. It's really incredibly powerful. If you can set aside 20 minutes every day to just sit and breathe, and there are lots of wonderful ways of kind of being guided. You can go to a class, there are apps, ironically. Um, there are lots of books. Lots of wonderful teachers. Mindfulness Association here in Scarborough. Rob Nairn's coming in a couple of weeks. An amazing, my teacher, an amazing teacher. Do go and see him. Try and get in a daily practice because it will change your life. It really will. It's an incredible tool of just learning to love your life as it is and starting to really kind of inhabit your experience and not kind of feel timid about it. Because it's wonderful being human and alive and we, we shouldn't shrink it into a, into a Facebook profile. Okay, I think we're probably done. Thank you very much for your attention. You're welcome.